As um, Queena mentioned, we're going to be looking at the book of Obadiah. It's the only book with one chapter that's found in the Old Testament, and it's a prophetic book. Um, and so I want to give you a little bit of the background of what was happening in history at that, in that area of the world at this uh, time when the book was written so that you can understand why it is that God sent the prophet Obadiah with these words uh, that are recorded for us in the Bible. So I kind of want to step back a little bit, give you a brief history of the people of Israel because it's important to understand what was happening. So uh, if you're familiar with uh, the Bible, uh, then this will be a kind of a refresher to you. If you're not, this will help a lot. So the people of Israel for about 400 years had been in bondage and captivity to the Egyptians. And after uh, that time, God sent the great deliverer, Moses. And through Moses, God worked in powerful, supernatural ways, and he delivered the people from bondage and captivity. And, and, and Moses led the people for uh, decades and he led them right to the border of the promised land, the land he had promised centuries earlier to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, their forefathers. And he said, this will be your land. This will be your inheritance. And Moses leads them right to the border. And then Moses dies. And after Moses' death, the, the um, baton of leadership, the mantle of leadership is passed on to a man named Joshua. Joshua leads the people into the promised land where they are established as a people and a nation. And, they, and they, they, they have to fight some battles to drive out the folks that were there, but they receive the promised land that God had sworn to them. And, uh, and then after uh, Joshua dies, there's about 350 years where the people are led by God as their king. They don't have an earthly king. God is their king. But at times during that uh, season, the people would wander away from following God. So God would raise up judges and the judges would come and bring the people back. God would use them sometimes to bring deliverance from, um, from uh, outside enemy forces that were encroaching on their land. But God would use these judges. But after this time, the people began to cry out to God, we want to be like everyone else else. That's never a good thing. Um, God's people are supposed to be set apart, but they said, we want to be like everyone else. Everyone else has a king. We don't have a king. We've got God. And, and God, we love you, but you know nobody can see you. So we want a king like everybody else. So God said, well, uh, okay, you're not really rejecting the judges. You're rejecting me, but I'll give you what you ask for. Sometimes the worst thing you get is God giving you what you asked for, by the way. So God raises up uh, the first anointed king of Israel, a man by the name of Saul. And Saul starts out great and ends terrible. He's, uh, he's not a really uh, wonderful king. But after Saul, there's a man who ascends to the throne by the name of David. David is the greatest king in the history of Israel. Uh, he's the same David that fought Goliath. And he establishes uh, Israel as a military powerhouse. He brings the people together. They create the this capital city of Jerusalem. Uh, there is where God's um, worship, to worship of God happens. The, the Ark of the Covenant is brought there and the people are, are prospering and growing. David dies and his son Solomon uh, succeeds him on the throne. And Solomon is wise. Uh, he's, in the Bible, he's called the wisest man who ever lived. And so Solomon builds on his father David's legacy. So not only now are they a military might, but Solomon establishes them as an economic powerhouse. 
And, and so they are the predominant superpower in that region. So much so that kings and queens and emissaries and leaders from all over the area will come. They want to hear Solomon's wisdom. They want to understand how he's brought them to this place of success. And without a doubt, the reigns of David and Solomon can rightly be called the golden age in the, in the history of the kingdom of Israel. Now, after Solomon's death, things begin to implode. Solomon is followed by his son, Rehoboam. And Rehoboam makes some very bad choices early on in his reign, so much so that it leads to civil war. And the nation of Israel is divided. There are two kingdoms. The nation of Israel is made up by, like, we would call like 12 tribes, 12 states that, that came together and represented the nation of Israel. After the civil war, it's two nations. 10 of the tribes are the nation to the north, the northern kingdom, known as the kingdom of Israel. The other two tribes that stayed faithful to the house of David, the lineage of David, are known as the southern kingdom. They're known as the kingdom of Judah. And, um, and, and so now there's these two kingdoms and, and the, in the Bible, this is the time of the kings and the book of Chronicles. And um, what happens during this time is it ushers in the prophetic period because over time, over these years of the kings leading the nation of Israel and the kingdom of Judah, the people, the politics, the culture, the society, the morals, and even the spiritual temperature of the people begin to decline and devolve and unravel more and more, more and more until uh, God warns the people. He begins to send prophets. He says, you are not staying true to me. You're not living lives that are honoring me. As, as political leaders, you're taking advantage of the people. As spiritual leaders, you're not leading them into my presence. You're leading them to worship false gods. As people, you're not living lives that reflect my moral, holy standards. You're living lives of depravity and sin culturally instead of building one another up, loving each other, uh, making a place for people to come in and be part of this community of faith. You are making it difficult. You're backstabbing. You're lying. You're defrauding one another. This entire breakdown. So God warns them through the prophets, turn away from this way of living. And by and large, over the years, the, the warning and the message of the prophets goes unheeded. There are moments when a, a king or a leader would hear that message and respond. And there'd be a brief uh, moment in history where things would get better. But over time, it just got worse and worse and worse. And so part of the warning of the judges or the prophets was if you don't change, if you don't listen to this word that God has sent, then destruction is going to come. And they wouldn't listen and they wouldn't listen. And then eventually in 722 BC, the kingdom of Israel, the northern kingdom, is defeated by the Assyrians. And the people are brought into bondage and captivity. About 140 years later, in 586 or so BC, the, the kingdom of Judah, the southern kingdom, is now defeated, not by the Assyrians, now the new uh, uh, power uh, nation in that area are the Babylonians. So the Babylonians come in and they march into the southern kingdom. They wipe the people out. It's, it's horrible. They carry most of the folks out into exile and they're brought out of the land and they're taken away. They march into the capital city of Jerusalem and they destroy the temple. 
So the spiritual center, what represented God's presence, is destroyed. And they're in this horrible moment in history. And it's in that moment, shortly after the the southern kingdom is destroyed, is taken and and defeated by the Babylonians and and Jerusalem and, and the temple is sacked. It's at that point where Obadiah shows up with this message from God. Now, what else do we know about Obadiah? Well, we know he was a prophet which simply means he spoke for God. He spoke on God's, but he was God's mouthpiece. He spoke for God to the people. And the other thing a prophet would do at different times, Obadiah didn't do this, he would speak for the people to God. But he is speaking a message and God would give not just Obadiah, but all the prophets messages in, in various and, and unique ways, dreams, visions, symbols, uh, audibly, sometimes written. It was all different ways, but they, uh, a true prophet was faithful to speak exactly what God shared. You couldn't be a self-appointed prophet. If you were a self-appointed prophet, you were known as a false prophet because you just you just prophesied what you wanted to happen, what you thought people wanted to hear because you would get paid to tell people what they wanted to hear. But true prophets were faithful to the word that God gave, even if the people didn't like it. So Obadiah was a prophet. What else do we know about Obadiah? That's it. He was a prophet. Well, I guess the other thing we know is his name was Obadiah. Um, and Obadiah is a very common name. It actually means servant of the Lord. And uh, it was a common name back then. As a matter of fact, if you read the Bible, you'll see other people that are named Obadiah uh, in, the, in the Bible. We don't know anything about him. We don't know which Obadiah he was. We don't know where he was born. We don't know his lineage. We don't know his occupation. All we know is what was written for us by him in this short little 21 verses in the book of Obadiah. Uh, and, and the message that God gives him to speak is actually not for the people of Israel directly, although it does pertain to them. It's a message to the people of Edom. So now you might be asking, well, who are the people of Edom? Well, remember I said earlier, you had Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the forefathers of the people of Israel. Abraham had a son named Isaac. Isaac had twin boys, one named Esau, the other named Jacob. Jacob ends up having 12 sons. And, uh, and God changes Jacob's name to Israel. And the 12 sons end up representing uh, the 12 tribes of Israel. But there was the, the twin brother. His name was Esau. He was actually a little bit older than Jacob by a few minutes. And Esau's descendants became known as the Edomites. So this prophetic word is not directly to the people of Israel, but it's to a close relative. And it is about what God is going to do to them because of how they have interacted and related to their extended family, the Israelites. So we're going to read through the entire prophecy, not in one uh, chunk. We're going to break it down into three different sections, but we're going to start by reading the first nine verses. It says, the vision of Obadiah. This is what the sovereign Lord says about Edom. We have heard a message from the Lord. An envoy was sent to the nations to say, rise, let us go against her for battle. See, I will make you small among the nations. You will be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You live in the clefts of the rocks and you make your home on the heights. You who say to yourself, who can bring me down to the ground? 
Though you soar like the eagle and make your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If thieves come to you, if robbers in the night, oh, what a disaster awaits you. Would they not steal only as much as they wanted? If grape pickers came to you, would they not leave a few grapes? But how, but how Esau will be ransacked, his hidden treasures pillaged. All your allies will force you to the border. Your friends will deceive and overpower you. Those who eat your bread will set a trap for you, but you will not detect it. In that day, declares the Lord, will I not destroy the wise men of Edom, those of understanding in the mountains of Esau. Your warriors, T-man, will be terrified and everyone in Esau's mountains will be cut down in the slaughter. Now that's a heavy passage right there. Um, now let me, let me just say this about the people of Edom. They lived, as we just heard, it might not have been clear to you, they lived up in the high hills uh, in that region. Uh, and, 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 and because they were high up there, they were surrounded by natural rock formations and in, uh, extensive cave networks. And if you come to Israel with me, you'll actually see some of these rock formations and the cave networks. I mean, caves are littered throughout Israel and, and they're there to this day. So they're up there and they felt because we're up here, we're safe, we're protected. Nothing can harm us. And God says, I've got a word for you. Destruction is coming. I've got a word for you. Slaughter is about to come down upon you. See, this is like the wrath of God, the anger of God, the justice of God, the, the judgment of God kind of stuff. And it's the stuff we don't like to talk about. You know what we like to talk about? The God of love, the God of grace, the God of mercy, the God of forgiveness, the God who's tender, who embraces everyone, the God who's compassionate, the God who's long-suffering. And he is all those things. And thank God that he is, because none of us, not one of us, would even dare to enter into his presence to lift a voice in praise and worship or feel uh, that we could call out to him if he wasn't those things. So he is all those things, but he is also the living God. He is also holy and just. And at some point, God will no longer look upon evil and let it slide. And so that is the, the reality of what is happening here at this moment. See, God isn't simply a, grand, a doting grandfather who refuses to condemn depravity and sin and evil. God is a consuming fire. And think about fire in the natural, right? What, what does fire do for us? It can warm us. It can provide safety. It can cook our food. But what else can fire do? It can burn it can destroy, it can wreak havoc and cause all kinds of damage. And what's the difference between what fire does? It depends on where you stand in relation to the fire. If you are in right relation to the fire, it is a wonderful blessing in your life. If you're in wrong relation to the fire, it's a, it's a horrible. Now, God is like that. God says, if you're in right relation to me, my grace, my mercy, my tenderness, my forgiveness will flow into your life. But if you refuse to listen to me, if you refuse to turn, to turn from your ways, if you continue to live a life of violence and wickedness and evil and depravity, at some point, my justice will come. My anger will be poured out. My wrath will be seen and justice will happen. And, 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 
That's the part that we don't like. We think it's beneath God to have wrath and anger. But think about it. In, in our natural, right? If you love someone and you saw something happening to them, all of a sudden someone jumped them in the street and started beating them up and you love them and you didn't do anything. It didn't stir anger in you to what was happening to that person. Did you even love them? When God sees the violence and the evil that is perpetrated against his people, people that he created in his own image, people that he loves, and he sees violence happening, he sees thievery happening, he sees all these things, it stirs something in the heart of God. And he says, at some point, I'm going to pour out judgment against that. It shouldn't surprise us. It shouldn't amaze us. It shouldn't uh, cause us any issue that God is angry at evil. What should be amazing to us is how much restraint God shows against meeting out justice against evil. God is tremendously patient with us. He looks and says, I see the evil that's happening. I know what's happening. And yet he restrains himself. He holds back his justice because he wants everyone to change. He wants everyone to come to a point of faith in Jesus Christ. He wants everyone to walk in God's goodness and to experience the radical transformation of life in Christ. God, God, judgment is God's last resort. God wants everyone to change. That is the heart of God. Sometimes what happens is we get mad that God doesn't bring justice sooner. When evil's happening to us, when we see evil in the world around us, when we see atrocities happening, what do we say? How long, oh Lord? God, when are you gonna fix this? When are you gonna stop this? Why are you letting this happen to me? Because it's happening to us, it's happening to someone we love, it's happening across the world. And, we, and we're horrified by it. The reason he doesn't is the same reason that he doesn't when you're in the middle of your sin. Because when you're in the middle of your sin, we don't say, God, bring justice. We say, God, be patient, be gracious. I'm frail and I'm learning and I'm, and I'm trying, but I'm, I, I know I'm not the person that you created me to be, but I wanna be. So this is what Jesus, one of his closest friends, this guy named Peter, he, the early church is starting and they're wondering how long is this gonna be? I mean, Jesus said, I'm coming back for you. And when he comes back, he's going to set all things right and he's going to put an end to evil and hate and, and all those things. And that they're facing persecution and they're being beaten and, and killed for their faith. And they say, God, when are you going to fix this? When are you going to make this all right? And so here's what Peter wrote to those early Christians. He said, the Lord is not being slow about his promise, as some people think. No, he is being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to be destroyed. He wants everyone, everyone, everyone to repent. That is the heart of God. It's not that he is permissive. It's that he is patient because he loves his creation that much. See, I don't know what your uh, idea of God is, but the God of the Bible is holy and he's good and he hates sin, but he wants everyone to live a life that honors him, that, that reflects his goodness, that walks in his grace, that understands his love. That's what he desires for everyone. So when he looks at the evil that we do to ourselves and to others, he offers forgiveness, he offers grace, he offers compassion, he's kind, 
And he says, accept this. But that same God who says, I will forgive if you come to me. I will be gracious if you ask me. I will pour out mercy upon mercy upon mercy. That same God is holy and just. And that same God will say, at some point, if you refuse to, uh, to turn, to change, to repent, to be different, then, then justice eventually will come. But it's not God's heart. It's not God's desire. God is for us. God wants everyone to live a rich, full, meaningful, abundant life. That's what God wants. That's what God offers us. But we can choose to live a sin-filled life, a life of depravity, a life of evil, a life of hurting ourselves and hurting others. God gives us that choice. But here's what we can't do. We can't fool God. You can fool your mother. She wants to believe your lies. But you're not going to fool God. He knows what you're doing. He knows how you're living. And at some point, you will reap the harvest of your life. This is what it says in the book of Galatians. You cannot mock the justice of God. You will always harvest what you plant. Those who live to satisfy their own sinful nature will harvest decay and death. If you continue to live an unrepentant life, eventually you're going to reap the harvest of death and decay. But it goes on and says this, but those who live to please the spirit will harvest everlasting life from the spirit. See, you can get away with living a life of sin, evil, violence, self-centeredness. You can get away with it for days, weeks, months, years, decades. People of Edom got away with it for centuries. But eventually, God's justice will flow. You may, not, you may get away with it for your entire life, but some point in the future, you're going to stand before God and give an account. And if your life is not hidden in Christ, if you have not turned to God through faith in Jesus Christ, then you will pay and the judgment will come. And it will be a horrible, horrible day of death and decay and destruction. But if you've turned to Christ, if your life is hidden in Christ, if you've turned to him and said, God, forgive me, then Jesus says, I will take all the judgment. I will take all the penalty. I will take all the wrath. And you don't have to face it. See, here's what we need to know about God. God loves us fiercely, but he is also fiercely angry with evil. And if we refuse to walk in his uh, offer of forgiveness, owning our sins, acknowledging them, saying I'm wrong, and then repent, which means not just saying I'm sorry and then keep living any way you want. It's saying, God, I'm sorry. I want to live the way you ask me to live. And sometimes we mess up and we start turning, but then we come back and we stumble and we fall, but we keep moving towards God. His grace is always there. But it's not just saying, God, oh, forgive me so I can keep living however I want to live. That's not repentance. God says, if you repent, my grace is there. But if you refuse to repent and turn from your sins, then eventually you will face my wrath. And it's a horrible, horrible thing. See, God is gracious to us, but he is greater than us. He forgives us, but he's not fooled by us. He is compassionate towards us, but he is not complacent. And at some point, his justice 
will flow. And that's what he's telling the people of Edom. He says, listen, my wrath is going to be poured out upon you. Now, the question is, why? What did they do? Well, Obadiah goes on and tells us. He says, because of the violence against your brother Jacob, you will be covered with shame. You will be destroyed forever. On the day you stood aloof while strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were just like one of them. You should not gloat over your brother in the day of his misfortune, nor rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their destruction, nor boast so much in the day of their trouble. You should not march through the gates of my people in the day of their disaster, or gloat over them in their calamity in the day of their disaster, nor seize their wealth in the day, in the day of their disaster. You should not wait at the crossroads to cut down their fugitives, nor hand over their survivors in the day of of their trouble. The day of the Lord is near for all nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. Your deeds will return upon your own head, just as you drank on my holy hill. So all the nations will drink continually. They will drink and drink and be as if they never had been. God is saying, I've seen your murder. I've seen your um, betrayal. I've seen you gloat over my people. I have seen you stand back and do nothing when you could have stood up side by side, shoulder to shoulder, and stood for my people. The people that I love, I've seen how you've treated them. And I've seen how you have not honored me and lived for yourself. And he says, because of that, judgment is coming. And so there's two sins that we see, uh, categories of sin that we see that the, the Edomites committed. One is the sin of commission, the things that they did. They slaughtered, they stole. See, for a season, they stood by and idly watched, but then eventually they joined in on the fun. They said, we might as well get something out of this. We're safe up here in the hills. We'll go down, we'll get some loot. We'll kill some people because we don't want them coming into our land and, and we'll take them out. And then we'll turn over some fugitives to the other powers and gain favor and, and, and build an alliance. And they mistreated and mishandled the people that God loved. But the other thing was not just the sin of commission, but the sin of omission. See, the sin of commission is the sins that you do, you actively engage in. The sin of omission are the things that you don't do when you could have. They could have stood up and said, this is our relatives. These are our family. These are people that God loves, and we're not going to stand idly by and watch this happen. The people of Edom were guilty of both sins, and as a result, God's judgment comes. And sometimes we need to remember, because it's easy to forget, we think the sin of commission is, is all that matters. But we have to remember this, doing nothing, the sin of omission, doing nothing to help others is almost as bad as the act itself. We also, it happens way too often, but we see it, it seems like every year or two, there'll be some news story out there where uh, someone, it's, you, typically it seems like it's a young lady, uh, is, is in some type of situation where she is being uh, physically, sexually assaulted, raped. Maybe it's on a bus, on a subway, outside a, a, a store or a, a club somewhere, and you hear the stories of person after person after person who walked by and did nothing. Well, I didn't rape her. Well, you know, you didn't stop the rape. And it's horrible. And God doesn't say, well, because you didn't rape her, you're innocent. 
He says, you had it in your power to do something and you did nothing. It's one of the reasons where as long as I'm the pastor here and anyone that's on the leadership here, uh, I, I know their hearts. And as a church, we will not, if we hear about abuse, if we hear about misbehavior, we're not just going to stand idly by and ignore it. If we know that, that, that sin is happening, we're not going to sweep it under the rug and ignore it. We are going to confront it head on in grace and in love. But as Kathleen shared last week, in love and truth, standing on the truth of God's word. The heart is always to restore. The heart is always to forgive. But if we see something happening that violates who God is and his holiness, we're not just going to pretend it didn't happen. That's what the Edomites did. And it brought havoc into their lives. And we see this in our own lives as well. People will live a life that defies God to do something. I'm daring you, God. Your judgment isn't going to come. Nothing's going to happen to me. We live life of violence, sin, hurting others, hurting ourselves. And we think God's never going to do anything. But I know this, and I have seen it in people that I know and I love and I've been in pastoral ministry for 23 years, and I've been a Christian since I was, uh, you know, basically born. My dad dragged my sorry self to church when I was little. Um, and so I have seen it through almost 49 years of, of being a part of a church. And it's this. If you start to live a life that refuses to honor God, then you walk outside of God's blessing. And part of God's blessing is his protection and his covering and you want to live outside of that, I have seen it more often than that, more often than not, lead to a life of ruin. You don't end up with the life you want. You can say you're good with it and stiff upper lip and say, because your heart becomes hard and calloused, but it's so far from whatever you ever dreamed. And beyond that, what's waiting for you when you stand before God, it, it, it breaks my heart. So, God says to the people of Edom, judgment is coming, and here's why. But then he goes on and says this. He says, but on Mount Zion will be deliverance. Mount Zion represents God's presence. He's saying, in, in, in my presence, there's deliverance, there's hope, there's restoration, there's grace. It will be holy, and Jacob will possess his inheritance. Jacob will be a fire, and Joseph a flame. Esau will be stubble, and they will set him on fire and destroy him. There will be no survivors from Esau. The Lord has spoken. People from the Negev will occupy the mountains of Esau, and people from the foothills will possess the land of the Philistines. They will occupy the fields of Ephraim and Samaria, and Benjamin will possess Gilead. This company of Israelite exiles who are in Canaan will possess the land as far as Zephath. The exiles from Jerusalem who are in Shephard will possess the towns of the Negev. Deliverers will go up on Mount Zion to govern the mountains of Esau. So what is that telling us? God is saying through Obadiah, here's what you need to know. Justice is coming and Esau will be utterly destroyed. Justice has been poured out on my people. The kingdom to the north was carried off by the Assyrians and history tells us they never, a few stragglers came back, but they never came back. We don't know what happened to the kingdom of the north. They were destroyed completely through God's judgment. The kingdom of the south, Judah, eventually after 40 years, 70 years in exile, come back to the promised land. That's why the kingdom of Judah came back there. That's why they're known as Jews. 
Those are the only ones that came back. Why does God utterly destroy the Edomites and not the people of Judah? Because the people of Judah cried out to God, God, forgive us. We made a mistake. We've messed up. They own their sins. They cried out to God and God through his great mercy brought them back. But the people of Edom refused to acknowledge God. They refused to own up to the evil that they've done. And God says, I will wipe them out completely. So what does that show us? It shows us God's justice. See, God promises that at some point he will bring his, just, his justice to bear on all creation. And at moments throughout history, biblical history and human history, there are other moments where his justice comes to bear and things get better, but it's only for a moment. But eventually, God says, justice will reign supreme. And when God pours out his justice, it results in something amazing. It results, sometimes we call it peace. Sometimes we call it um, a sense of, of just wholeness. His justice is there. There's, there's no more violence. Everything is the way it should be, but it's only for a moment. But there's a word for that. It's a Hebrew word. It's the word shalom. Now, if you've ever heard that word, it's often used by Jewish people as either a greeting or, a, um, or saying goodbye, shalom. And it's often understood to mean peace or prosperity or blessing or um, uh, prosperity, may you prosper. But it, it really means a whole lot more than that. It's a very deep, meaningful word. It's found throughout the Bible. It's found in the Old Testament over 250 times, and its Greek equivalent is found 95 times in the New Testament. And really, it's hard to put it into English words, but here's, here's the heart of what shalom means. Shalom means whole, complete, perfect, everything being well, everything exactly the way it's supposed to be because it's the way God designed it to be. And when God brings justice and puts an end to evil in those moments, everything now is the way it's supposed to be. But it's only temporary. But at some point, God will bring his final justice and everything will be put right. And there will be shalom forever. And I love the way John Ortberg describes what shalom would look like here on earth. Not when Jesus comes back, but what a world, what a, what, what a community with shalom in it would look like. Here's what he says. In a world where shalom prevails, all marriages would be healthy and all children would be safe. Disagreements would be settled with grace and civility. Doors would have no locks and schools would not need metal detectors. No child would be bullied and batter, battered women's shelters would be turned into community recreation centers. Every time one human being touched another, it would be to express encouragement, love, or affection. No one would be afraid. People of different races would join hands, enriched by their differences and united in their common humanity. And in the center of it all would be the God who designed it, God himself, whose spirit would fill each person and whose justice would put an end to evil. See, when justice prevails, peace breaks out. When justice prevails, love breaks out. When justice prevails, shalom breaks out out. But the reason it requires justice is because our evil holds shalom back. 
It's not if we could just love better. It's we need God by his grace and his justice to put an end to the evil that we do to ourselves and to others. It's amazing to me how many times I'll hear people point to God as the source of their problems. God's the source of my problems. No, the source of most of our problems is that we refuse to live the way God asks us to live. And if we would live the way God asks us to live, it would be us putting an end to evil. But it's not in the heart of man to do that. And so God will restrain his justice. He will hold back his judgment. He will keep back his wrath until that moment when he says, I will send it and I will make all things new. But here is the way this prophecy ends. And thank God it ends this way. It is the best part of the entire prophecy. Here it is. The Lord himself will be king. In other words, God is saying through Obadiah, listen, a lot is going to happen. Justice has been poured out on my people. Justice is going to be poured out on the Edomites. Evil has happened and evil will be judged, but evil does not have the final word. What he's saying is this, evil does not have the final word. God does. In the end, God will be king. He will reign and his justice will be fixed for all eternity. See, I don't know what you carried in here this morning. I don't know what you're facing in life, but I know this, evil is not does not have the last word. Pain does not have the last word. Disappointment does not have the last word. Betrayal does not have the last word. Divorce, abuse, division do not have the last word. Abandonment, loneliness, isolation do not have the last word. Racism, sexism do not have the last word. Not even death has the last word. God will be their king. He will be seated on his throne. Justice will be poured out. And that is the final word. I don't know what you're going through, but you can turn to God. Take the words of Obadiah to heart. Take the words to heart because justice and judgment and wrath are coming, but they need not come for you. If your life is hidden in Christ, then Jesus has taken all God's wrath upon himself and you're not going to ever have to face it. Stay faithful to the Lord. He is your defender. He is just. He has seen all the pain that you've gone through, the injustice that you've faced, all that you've endured. He is your defender. So what you need to do in those moments is not cry out, God, get them. Send your judgment on them. What you need to do is say, Cry out, God, send that prophetic voice through your Holy Spirit. See, the Bible tells us in Hebrews, in past times, God spoke through his prophets, but now he speaks through his own son, through his Holy Spirit. So you cry out, God, I know what they've done to me. But send your grace, send your voice, send your spirit, send that prophetic voice into their life so that they can turn to you and they don't have to face your judgment or your wrath. God's seen everything you've gone through. Stay faithful to him. But you know what? That same God has seen everything that you've done. The evil that you've done to others, the evil that you've done to yourself, the way you've sinned, the way you violated his holiness. And if you've cried out to God and asked him to forgive you, he'll forgive you. But if you haven't, then now is that moment when you turn to God and say, I give you my life and I receive new life in Christ. 
because the time will come when justice will happen, but you don't have to face it. What God wants instead is for you to be restored to Mount Zion, to be in his presence where he will be the king of your life. Heavenly Father, we come to you right now, and God, I ask by your Holy Spirit, would you begin to stir in us? We would take the words of Obadiah seriously. We would know we, if we're in Christ, we don't need to be afraid, but God, we need to be faithful. We don't have to worry about every time we sin that you're gonna just smite us, but God, we need to be quick to turn and ask forgiveness. God, we don't need to worry that we're gonna stand before your white throne judgment, but God, our hearts need to break for those that will. So God, if we've been mistreated, if we've been violated, if violence has been done to us, we've been robbed, stolen from, lied about, lied to. God, help us not to pray for your justice to flow, but God, help us to pray for you to restrain your justice just a little bit longer. That we would think, not in cosmic terms, but in personal terms, about that little brother, that cousin, that friend. Say, God, just just a little longer. Oh God, just a little longer that they would come to understand who you are. Because you don't want any to be destroyed. You want all to come to life. God, for those of us who are following hard after you as best as we can, would your Holy Spirit sustain us? Would your Holy Spirit strengthen us? God, would your Holy Spirit transform us more and more into the image and likeness of your son, Jesus? so that we could receive eternal life from that same spirit, the same spirit that raised Christ Jesus from the dead. I'm just going to invite you now to stand. We're going to sing a couple songs and celebrate who God is. But maybe here this morning, you'd say, I, I'm wrestling with some things. Some things you talked about in the sermon, it really hit me. I've been living a way that I don't want to live anymore. I'm going to invite you. We're going to have prayer teams up here. They would love to pray with you, pray for you. Maybe you don't want someone to pray for you. You just want some time with you and God. You can feel free to have that time sitting at your seat. But you could also feel free to just come up here and get away and kneel in God's presence. Maybe you need prayer about something completely different than what we talked about this morning. Your marriage is falling apart. Your finances are in shambles. A relationship is struggling. You've got issues at work. Your business is not where you need it to be. These prayer partners would love to join their faith with your faith and let God break into that moment. So I just want to invite you as we worship the Lord now, come for prayer and let God move in whatever situation you're facing.